Welcome to the Voices of Australia podcast, hosted by me, Anthea Hancox, and Lydia Tessima, where the concept and reality of social cohesion is deeply explored. This podcast is brought to you by the Scanlon Foundation Research Institute. Each fortnight, we bring to you an interesting guest who present a new and often unexplained perspective of Australia. We acknowledge the traditional owners of the land from which we are recording the podcast, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations, and in the spirit of reconciliation, we pay our respect to all First Nations people. Welcome, everybody, to this new episode of Voices of Australia. We're absolutely delighted to have with us today, Mariam Visaday. She is an extraordinary individual and an award-winning human rights champion, a lawyer, diversity and inclusion practitioner, and a contributing author and social commentator. In 2021, Mariam was appointed CEO of Media Diversity Australia. She also founded the Islamophobia Register Australia and has held multiple board positions, including formerly as co-chair of Australian Muslim Women's Centre for Human Rights and Our Watch. Mariam has worked as a radio commentator for the ABC and as a columnist for Fairfax Media. So we're absolutely delighted and thrilled to have her here to talk about uh, media and social cohesion. So Mariam, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. I should firstly, though, let everybody know that Lydia Tessima, who's my co-host on these uh, on these podcasts, hasn't been able to join us today. But uh, I am just delighted to be able to have this conversation with you and uh, are looking forward to hearing some more about you and your experiences, particularly um, around your views in relation to the media and social cohesion. So um, I thought, Mariam, we might start by asking you to tell us a little bit about yourself and how you would describe social cohesion from your life experiences. Great. Thank you. And thanks thanks for having me. I'm joining you from Camaragal land and just wanted to pay my respects to elders past and present as well. Um, social cohesion um, to me is a phrase that's been thrown around quite a lot and something I, um, you know, heard uh, I, I, quite a lot throughout having um, migrated to Australia as um, early on in my life. Um, I think it probably means different things to different people, but the way the simple thing, um, the simple view that I take is as someone who um, came to Australia under the uh, humanitarian sort of intake from Afghanistan, um, a country that has seen decade upon decade of war and turmoil and a whole host of things. Um, for me, it, it you know, I just see it as normality. I see it as peace. I see it as um, a country whose citizens um, and inhabitants are able to live um, in, in relative peace together. And whilst not losing their identities and, and what makes them unique, um, but together that those differences um, and uniqueness is celebrated in, in a manner in which everyone's able to get on um, with each other and live in peace and harmony. I guess that's how I see it. And the context is always different um, depending on what your what lens you apply to it. So, um, you know, social cohesion or peace that like the, the bar might be really high for people who've only ever experienced arguably social cohesion or relative yeah. levels of social cohesion. And then others who, you know, the, the prism for which they look at 
a situation happens to be that they've come from a country full of war. And so mm-hmm. the, the term, you know, that they might have a lower bar as <laughs> to what they consider to be social cohesion and peace and, and what, what they're, li- they're happy to tolerate and live with because yeah. they've just experienced such um, a frequency of trauma, instability and trauma. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Mariam, you, you arrived here in 1990. What what were the things that allowed you that to start to feel like that you had that sense of peace, that sense of um, that this was somewhere where you could actually start to feel comfortable? Were there sort of rocky bits along the way in getting to that point and for your family as well? Yeah, I think... Um I I was very young, so mm-hmm. um, I was around seven. So in terms of what I specifically remember, um, you know, it, it was different. Like I, the the bits, the memories that's um, that's kind of stick out to me are things like, you know, I would get upset about things like um, not having the toys that, mm-hmm. that I had before. It's like, what happened to all my toys? <laughs> Didn't you pack them? And so that's the lens on through which I viewed the world at that point in time, having moved from one country to another and then settling in Australia. So that's certainly the, the lens that I looked at it from. But I think when you're young, you're fairly resistant and, you, you know, change happens and you just kind of roll with it. Mm. So I don't have any sort of um, – I remember the toys thing, that like that was a, <laughs> a major issue for me. But um, I think beyond that, what I do also remember is um, – both mum and dad um, taking on new roles, um, mum needing to go and find some sort of work. I remember she did odd jobs at one stage, worked at a laundromat and used to take me with her. Um, so I remember things like that and I remember that being quite different to what, you know, the roles and jobs that they had back home. But, of course, back home I was too young to remember specifics. Yeah, and it's only when, as you get older that, that you hear from your parents and your siblings and your family about the, the contrast, you know, to the life experience they had back home coming from a level of wealth to then mm-hmm. starting quite literally from scratch and having to make do um, with the jobs, um, with, you know, just, just having to accept a, a, um, a standard of life that you're not quite used yeah. to, but yet you're so grateful to be here, you're so grateful to be out of war um, that, you know, you you embrace all of those do you think that's what informed your commitment to human rights? I, I think so. I think, um, and this is a very common story across other migrant families as well, where there's that that theme of, you know, dropping everything, having to flee and then starting from scratch and how that really does make you quite humble um, and really does make you realise that actually you can get by and live without <laughs> these massive luxuries. Like, um, and it is a change, but um, life is so precious that you're willing to depart from all those additional things that you would you once considered necessities but really they're luxuries in some sense because what you have is your life and your livelihood and your family and 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 a roof over your head and Mm. and that's that's good enough um so i think um i've got a strong sense of social justice that i know um the my mum influenced me quite significantly um she's very um social justice oriented 
replicated. So I think I definitely picked that up from my mum. But I think the life experiences of moving to another country, starting from scratch, and your parents quite almost drumming into this concept of uh, feeling, you know, being grateful for what you have and the fact that these opportunities were snatched away from my family. Um, and so um, the migrating and, and going through all the, um, you know, quite significant trauma and quite significant experiences to get to where we got to having to flee Afghanistan during the Soviet war at that point in time and then going to multiple different countries and trying to find, you know, somewhere to call home. And um, I I now think back to I, I have two young children and, and I, you know, sometimes I struggle to do the grocery run with them. And I think, well, imagine trying to flee a country mm. with, with, with <laughs> multiple young children. Like, yes. um, and it, that's that's when it really just brings it back home that that, that experience has really, I guess, has shaped me. Mm. whether consciously or unconsciously. Um, but I'm, I, I always kind of think, well, my parents, com- you know, they, they gave up so much so that we could have opportunities and I want to make the most of those opportunities. And if I do have a, um, an opportunity or, for, or a platform, I want to ensure that I can help level the playing field for those who don't. Well, it, cert- it certainly does remind you of what are the basic elements that anybody deserves in, for a life of dignity. And, uh, yes, and that's precisely. the sort of thing we're trying to achieve. If um, if I think now about the media and, and your understanding and knowledge of it, what, what do you believe is the responsibility of the media in building a cohesive society? Yeah, so look, I feel really strongly about this having, um, you know, kind of... Uh, you know, being a media commentator for a long period of time and particularly during a period where as an Australian Muslim, um, we were quite regularly in the media spotlight um, and um, dominated headlines Mm -hmm. often for all the wrong reasons. So I think I've seen the impact play out um, in terms of media portrayal of minority communities um, and the broader implications that can have for social cohesion and a whole host of different things. Um, The way I see it is the media is a loudspeaker for um, culture. It's kind of like a shot front to society Um, and the way that it portrays society more broadly, the way that it has the power to either perpetuate a stereotype or it has the power equally to challenge one and which which, uh, it chooses to do can have huge implications for those communities that are impacted and how people view those communities um and there you know the 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 research the media diversity australia um and others have done um kind of help show that that where um the media is not broadly reflective of australia the viewpoints that there are certain viewpoints that are simply missing um, and it's not um, ill intention. People don't wake in the morning and decide that they're going to exclude certain voices or that they're going to only put forward certain viewpoints and certain angles and particular stories. But the reality is that it does happen. And so um, when that lived experience is simply not there, then there will be issues that come up in the news cycle. And um, the way that it's covered, it could be factually inaccurate. Um, it could be uh, problematic. It could be stereotypical. Um, it could um, perpetuate negative stereotypes. So there's a whole host of things and, and the media is incredibly powerful in in how it tells stories and whose tell- stories it tells and whose stories it doesn't tell. 
Yes. Do you think they have a responsibility, though, to really be aware of that contribution that they're making to where society is going? Or do you think they're, they misunderstand perhaps what they, what, that power that they've got and how to use it wisely? Yeah, well, I think we can't. Um, the media, we, we call it the media, right? But it's not homogenous, right? No. There's lots of different players, different people, different. So to varying degrees, there is some level of awareness, but I'd say not everybody who's a player in the media um, or an influencer, you know, may necessarily understand the implications of their words, their actions, their inactions, um, their commentary, they, you know, not everybody would um, have an appreciate, appreciation of that. Um, and so I think there are, you know, certainly elements of the media that are very conscious of the impact um, that they can have and, and they take that responsibility very seriously and tread with caution. And then there are others who simply don't. And mm. I do think that sometimes that may come down to the lack of lived experience. Sometimes it comes to a topic that I talk about quite a bit which is um, societal privilege and the fact that we all have varying levels of privilege but are unaware of our privileges and so you know as the saying goes um, privilege, those that are accustomed to privilege you know equality feels like oppression mm-hmm. um, and so I think when you reflect on our upbringings and the opportunities that we some of us have been afforded over others we we mistake that to well, I've worked really, really hard and I have a lot of merit. Um, we ignore the fact that the society doesn't operate on a meritocracy basis. And so some people are afforded opportunities over others, not because they have merit per se, but because, um, you know, those opportunities were presented to them and they were able to take those opportunities on. So I, I, I guess, you know, in a nutshell, what I'm trying to say is that there is a huge levels of privilege um, that, that some people have. And so that means that they, it's hard for them to look inwards and have introspection and say maybe the way that I'm engaging in in telling this story, telling this new story can be problematic. Yeah. Um and they because the consequences is not um Oh, you know, it's not a consequence that they've ever faced. It's hard for them to empathise and understand the implications more broadly. Yeah. I've had many conversations where people will say to me, "Well, I'm just telling the story. I'm telling this. I'm telling the story straight. I tell it as as I see it." Um, and then I give them numerous examples of how it isn't quite telling the story straight because you don't know what you don't know. Yeah. Um, and so, point. therefore, yeah. Mm. No, really good point. So, um, Mariam, I wonder if you could tell us, I, I'm going to sort of progress that. We tend do tend to talk about the media just referring to mainstream media, whether that's print or radio or television. Um, mm. But, of course, there is the whole area of social media as well, but I'll get on to that in a minute. But yeah. I was going to ask you, perhaps you could um, just remind us what are the objectives of Media Diversity Australia and, and why is it so important that Media Diversity Australia exists? Yeah, so... I mean, let me start by saying we wish we didn't have to exist. Um, a lot of organisations like MDA exist because they're in desperate. There is a desperate need for it um, because the status quo has not 
um, achieved a status, uh, um, achieved a sense of equality, um, equality of opportunities and equitable opportunities, and so therefore MDA exists. Um, it was born out of a place of uh, frustration and a lived experience, and founded by two journalists, um, founded uh, is by Isabel Lowe and then co-founded um, by Antoinette Latouf. Um, and and the the key objective really is to ensure that we help create a media landscape that looks and sounds like Australia. It's a simple as that it's about representation it's not about tokenism it's not about providing um some people you know uh, opportunities above others or, or um you know promoting people who lack merit it's not about that it, it is simply about ensuring that the voices that live and breathe in australia that that are of um you know that, that are part of the australian story that they that those stories are told um that those perspectives are included mm-hmm. um and um, yeah, and so that and so what we've done, the MDA, since being founded in 2017, and I've I, I've now been in this role for just under a year, um, is ensuring that we bring um, the key players along that journey rather than kind of yelling from the sidelines and talking just about our research or just about the issues at hand, it's about saying, okay, well, there's ample research that indicates that the media is not representative, whether it comes to social class, um, where the vast majority of uh, media professionals live, for example, how, say, Western Sydney voices are rarely um, represented. There's ample research, including our own, um, the the key flagship research, who gets to tell Australian stories, which benchmarks diversity inclusion. All of these... um, the, all of the evidence seems to suggest that it's not representative and how can we help make it representative in an authentic way, uh, in a way that, that there is longevity to it. That are, um, And so we, we, we have a membership model, we do internships, we do summer um, fellowships, we do a whole host of things and the intention is both to um, work, you know, provide advice, uh, tools and know-how to media companies to ensure that they're very much embracing um, and providing opportunities for people, for, for journalists and media professionals of all backgrounds and, and helping level the playing field, but equally that um, minority communities who may not necessarily be journalists or media professionals, but often are thrown into the media spotlight um, so that they're well-equipped to be able to navigate those conversations. So that's some of the programs that we run. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. And and I encourage anybody that it thinks that it's an area that they're more interested in to find out more about. Uh, that they go and have a look at the Media Diversity uh, Australia website as well. They, um, I'm curious, Marianne, and, and I'm wondering from your experience whether or not there's you've got examples of where you've seen uh, training work, either of those that are already in the media industry or for those that uh, want to be in the media industry or want to be a spokesperson for whatever the issue might be. Have you seen examples of where that's really made a difference? Yeah, so what we try and do um, at MDA is track uh, the the impact. We, through our employment pathways, we then track the conversion rate. So if we place, um, if we place um, secondees or interns or fellows into newsrooms, for example, we then track the conversion rate of those individuals finishing that program and then with that they actually get secure a job, and so we know that we the, those internships in particular, if I can reflect on that, that it is a life changing experience that gives those individuals the requisite experience to then go and secure a job, a permanent role in 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 the um, sort of Australian media. Um, 
organisations. And so we certainly track that and know that there is a really high conversion rate and that those internships um, are really impactful. We also, where we deliver training like um, uh, workshops like Amplifying Voices or Community Voices, um, we also track to see where we're, for example, media training um, community advocates, um, you know, we, we track how much traction they get off the back of that training. And we, we've seen, um, you know, wonderful examples of people that have come through our programs that go on and, you know, they're, they're doing fabulous things on Q&A, for example, or, you know, they're doing live um, TV. Um, and and what the workshops do is, is really um, build on their skill sets in order to be able to go out there and represent their communities um, in an accurate light. So we certainly track um, the impact that those programs um, have and we've seen uh, and we have a, a thing across our social media called hashtag MDA impact where we'll see someone that we placed, you know, in a in in an internship 12 months ago and we track their journey. Um, and there's a couple that I can remember um, Khaled Khafawali, um, who, you know, started off as someone that came to one of our networking events and spoke to one of our MDA staff members and said, look, I'm really keen to do X, Y, Z and how can, how can you help? And, and from there, we tracked his journey and we, and, and we've, he's now, um, you know, was appointed in a position um, by The Guardian as a rural reporter. Um, and, you know, 12 months ago, I don't think he would have envisaged <laughs> something like that. I think he was, um, in fact, he was... Uh, like had thought that he wouldn't be able to make it in journalism, ended up going and working at KPMG, um, didn't particularly like it and then just <laughs> wanted to venture back. And and that is a success story. And we track that through, you know, um, hashtag, uh, hashtag MDA impact to kind of tell those stories of individuals that it's not because they didn't want to succeed in journalism. It's because they felt that there were barriers and they weren't able to. Yeah. And in fact, I hear stories from some of our interns um, and the interns are of varying ages. They're not necessarily really just graduates, as I mentioned, um, that, you know, sometimes they go and interview at certain media organisations and they don't get the job and then suddenly we place them through one of our programs and those those same media companies <laughs> suddenly select them and say, I want that person. And so, you know, there are multiple factors at play, but I know that the work MDA is doing is having huge impact and it's just about doing that at scale um, because there are a lot of initiatives out there, but very rarely do they focus on media. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we, we know that it's a, a particular area that requires a lot more work and we're really keen to be part of that. that. It's a really interesting thing. And I know you're often called on for commentary on a whole range of different issues. How, yeah. how do we go about uh, to keep expanding the number of voices that are being sought on a greater range of issues? I mean, it's not mm. uncommon for somebody to, to approach a Muslim about an issue which relates to the Muslim community in some way. Yeah. But how do we get uh, a Muslim to be approached around infrastructure or around, yeah. um, you know, a, the school education programs and things like mm. that? How, how do we go about expanding the number, the people's awareness of the number of voices that are out there to comment on yeah. these sorts of things. That's a really good point, Anthea, and that's something I've been kind of trying to bag on about for, for years, right, because I keep going on about how I have a skill set outside of being an Australian Muslim or <laughs> I have a skill set outside of being an Afghan-Australian, for example. Yeah. Um, and I think th- the more you do that, the more you, quote-unquote, normalise difference. Um, I think when you think about 
um, an expert on any particular subject matter. Um, being of an um, Anglo-Saxon background does not seem to mean that you can only speak to certain issues, right? There's n- there's never an assumption that because you are of a white Australian background that you can only speak to X, Y, Z issues. <laughs> but sometimes there is an assumption that if you're an Afghan Australian that you can speak to this issue and this issue and that's about it. You know, they're not necessarily going to come and ask me about Marion, what do you think about interest rates? You know, like I, I think um, when it comes to expertise and specialty, that's what it is. It is about normalising um, uh, voices and commentators in the media to speak to different issues um, because, believe it or not, Asian Australians um, and Afghan Australian, whatever, whichever your background is, um, uh, grapple with the same day-to-day mm-hmm. issues that everybody else does, you know, um, interest rate spikes impact us, you know, the mental load of parenting impact us, whether it's book week and whether you've remembered (laughs) to do those things, those impact us. But equally what happens is we have those day-to-day impacts that everybody has, but then something happens um, back home in Kabul, as as happened in in the case of, um, you know, my my family um, impacted with when Kabul fell Mm -hmm. Um, and that has an impact. And so what that does is it, it's an additional thing that you then absorb on top of all the everyday things that you um, have to navigate um, yeah. in terms of a life as a parent, life as a working mother, all of those. Um, and I think it's just about understanding um, understanding that. And so I think the normalising of difference and, and people then, um, I know presumably your your listeners have completely converted on this concept as to why we need to, um, you know, when, for example, I, I identified, I say, as an Afghan-Australian, and people say, well, why do you say that? Well, you're just an Australian. And, and the point, of course, is that it goes back to what we started with, right, which is people should be able to um, bring their identities and not have to, um, you know, minimise their identities, um, apologies about the noise in the background, but <laughs> they right. shouldn't have to minimise their identities. It, it is a core part of their identity, um, yep. and and yeah, and so and and it's an it's a part of their identity that unfortunately is a reason for sometimes demonisation and isolation, and a whole host of other things. So you can't. Um, I suppose, resolve those issues until you call them out. So identifying in that way sometimes is necessary for that. I would love for us to get to a point where we don't need to harp on about, you know, quote unquote, identity politics or your cultural background or your faith background or the colour of your skin or the languages that you speak. But provided we go through life with those factors and those diversity dimensions being reasons for why sometimes some people face additional barriers, then you do need to call that out and and speak about that. Absolutely. But it should also be an enormous source of pride for Australia as a whole that we have people that have multiple identities and that they they bring them to bear to everything that they think about. Yeah. One of the things that we have noticed in other work that we've done has been that the uh, the networks that you often find uh, individuals or journalists within the mainstream media reach out to tend to be quite limited. Um, they're not necessarily aware of how to go about expanding their networks or to uh, find avenues by which they can seek people from areas other than their neighbours or their family friends to mm-hmm 
provide commentary. Have you got any advice that you would give to journalists about how they can start to expand those networks so that they can actually become far more familiar with, mm. uh, with individuals different to themselves? Yeah, that's a really good point. I'd say just to unpack why those um, networks might be um, not as extensive, right? Sometimes it's not because people aren't trying. Sometimes it's there is a lack of trust in certain media um, platforms and so therefore um, people may be contacted by journalists but they might be hesitant to, hesitant to actually engage mm-hmm. and so there, there is also that issue of unpacking why there is that mistrust of the media with respect to some media um, platforms in particular and how do we bridge that gap how do we win that trust back and I think part of that is because there has been research by altogether now and and others that that indicate that you know there are some media platforms that simply um, don't give minority communities if I can take the example of Australian Muslims you know they, they're not given a fair hearing and so therefore they will entirely avoid speaking to those journalists but I think I think more broadly what MDA is trying to do through some of our programs is, and, and this answers your question as to what advice would you have for journalists, is is actually we sometimes you do need to bridge that gap and that doesn't happen when you uh, have a tight deadline and you're rushing to file a piece and you're like, right, I've got to get this done by X time. It happens when you dedicate proper time, set aside proper time and engage with those communities mm-hmm. that you may need to call upon in future and develop rapport and build relationships. It's like any other business relationship, yeah. right? Like you can't Absolutely. just go to someone at the 11th hour and expect them to, to, to be there for you and yeah. to be great talent and to provide you exactly what you need. Um, and I, so what we do through the program called Amplifying Voices is actually bring the journalists together with the community advocates or the community leaders or the community influencers. And, you know, through a series of weeks, we say, right, well, this this is Matthew from the Sydney Morning Herald, and we introduce him to the you know, 20 participants. And they have an opportunity to speak to Matthew. They have an opportunity to ask questions. Um, and then they have an opportunity to exchange details at the end of that program. And so when when Matthew needs someone, um, you know, to speak to an issue that's happening in Canterbury, Bankstown, he can call upon those individuals (laughs) that he connected to as part of that program. And so that's just one example, right? Yeah. I think more broadly that needs to happen at a large scale. Like, um, you know, um, I was speaking recently to a News Corp executive where we're in conversations with getting News Corp on board as members of Media Diversity Australia because we've onboarded um, everybody, like pretty much every single media company. So we've got Channel 7, Channel 9, 10, ABC, SBS, um, AAP and the Daily Oz and we're talking to News Corp. So we're really just trying to bring everyone to the table and say let's be part of the, you know, work together. And he was sort of saying to me that we he knows that when it comes to the Daily Telegraph, a huge segment of their audience um, is Western Sydney. Um, it's yeah. uh, and and he focuses on sports in particular, and he recognises how important it is to ensure that you represent those voices. And so, if you want to build the trust and you want to go to that, those communities for, let's say, commentary on specific articles or specific news pieces, then you need to have built that trust yeah. and that rapport and have a presence there and have a local angle and for them to feel like they are genuinely heard, not misconstrued, not misinterpreted, not um, demonised, that, you know, so once that rapport and that trust is there, you're naturally going to get greater engagement. Absolutely. 
Absolutely. Thanks uh, Thanks very much for that. Now, you, no um, as I mentioned earlier, you are a passionate advocate for human rights. Um, what would you like to see from the media um, in keeping a focus on the improvements that are needed within the Australian society? I think um, what I'd like to see, and this applies across the board, but it's particularly important in, in the Australian media landscape because of the power and the influence and the implications uh, that their work has more broadly. I would just um, like everyone to, you know, um, irrespective of whether they have skin in the game, so to speak, to care, um, to say, I recognise that I have a level of influence, that I have a level of privilege. And just because I have not experienced, for example, racism or xenophobia or um, Islamophobia or um, homophobia, or just because I haven't experienced these things myself, does not mean that it doesn't exist, does not mean I can... Um, you know, not tread cautiously, not to age in those things. So I think it. I think it. I do think it requires a level of introspection, recognizing that our words and our actions, and sometimes our inactions, have domino impacts on communities. Um, and just because we may not feel that ourselves, doesn't mean that we shouldn't try hard to create a level playing field for everybody. And sometimes people wait to have lived experience in order to really get it right. It's kind of, and, and the yeah. example I give is because we hear about this idea that um, there's some piece of research that says that, that CEOs who have daughters tend to run more progressive organisations. And, and I've often reflected on that. Thought, well, that's fabulous, right? <laughs> but maybe don't wait till you have a daughter, yes. um, you know, like just kind of be like, right, you know, gender equality is important, whether it impacts my own family or not, whether it impacts me directly or not, you know, um, yes, uh, the chances of perhaps someone having a daughter is much higher, for example, than having a child that has black skin. Mm -hmm. And so you might never experience that in your life, but that is not to say that just because you've not experienced that, that you can't then empathise with the fact that someone, you know, with darker skin colour faces additional racism, faces additional barriers, that there's intersectional identities there. And so I think, um, I guess the call out is recognise that this is an issue, recognise that we don't live and operate in a meritocracy or a level playing field and some of us have far more power and influence to actually help level that playing field and it's really minimal things that we need to do yeah. but it just requires us to actually say you know what I care I'm going to do something about it and, um, and be conscious be conscious yeah. and that means sometimes swimming against the tide but do that you know show leadership um show courage and recognize that this is an issue and that we all play a role great thank thanks marion i just have one last question for you which is um really trying to tap back into that uh, um afghan culture experience uh that mm -hmm. i know you were young but i'm sure that you haven't lost contact with that culture what aspects um of the afghan culture do you think australians should embrace that would contribute to social cohesion yeah, wonderful question. Um, I think there is um, 
Afghan culture and the people of Afghanistan, um, they definitely have um, a culture of hospitality, a culture of, um, you know, you go to someone's um, home in Afghanistan and they might be significantly poor, barely have anything, but they will pull out their best meal um, and they will serve it to you if you are their guest. Uh, Even if that means that they may go without, you know, um, food for the next few days. Um, There is a culture of hospitality, a culture of, you know, respect for elders, um, you know, and I've seen that particularly when when you've got elderly parents and you see the stark difference, for example. Um, uh, And things like that, there are cultural aspects that are an absolute strength. Um, And I think that when it comes to the Afghan culture, I specifically, you know, I think those are some specific things um, that, that, that I'd call out and it's certainly um, been quite a, you know, it's had a significant um, influence in my life and Mm -hmm. and the view that I take and even the leader that I am today and the approach that I take, which is very much, um, it's not individually focused, but it's more community and um, collaborative um, focus. And, And the research also actually picks up on that. There is research that picks up on the leadership styles of people of various sort of Asian backgrounds and how that what implication that has for their leadership styles depending on which cultures they come from so there is huge assets and huge strength in 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 the cultures that that we bring absolutely thank you so much for sharing that that uh, sense of generosity is such an important component and and we're certainly seeing it in some areas today but it is um, certainly uh, an element that we need to continue to embrace and uh, make sure it is a part of the Australian culture so thank you very much, Mariam. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you today. And, pleasure. Uh, and I look forward to uh, seeing Media Diversity Australia just go from strength to strength and then perhaps not be needed after that. So. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. This podcast was brought to you by the Scanlon Foundation Research Institute. This podcast is produced by Faisal Farah with sound design and mixing by John Bigelow. Original music is by Official Steno. You can find all our publications on our website at scanlaninstitute.org.au. Please subscribe to be the first to receive our next fortnightly edition.